Right, we will begin now. A very good afternoon to our audience from warm and humid Singapore. And welcome to today's online event hosted by the Middle East Institute at the National University of Singapore. My name is Clemens Che, and I will be the moderator for today's webinar entitled China's Political Entanglements in the Middle East Escaping Inevitability. This is a timely topic considering the Chinese Foreign Minister's six country tour of the Middle East which looks set to be concluded just about now, um, following a very hyped uh, China-Iran deal and also the announcement of a regional production hub in the UAE for the Sinopharm COVID-19 vaccine. China's bilateral relationship in the Middle East have, has evolved into comprehensive strategic partnerships beyond its economic footprint in the region. The long-standing Chinese vision, often understood through the Belt and Road Initiative or the BRI, has also been revitalized with a new vision 2035. Today, we have with us a fantastic lineup of experts who will address China's quest to become a tech power, how and whether Beijing will be caught up in political entanglements in the region, the US-China strategic rivalry, among other salient topics. So before I begin introducing our speakers, please allow me to run through the sequence of proceedings. We do have four speakers on board and each of them will give an eight to 10 minute presentation, following which we will have the Q&A segment. Members of the audience are of course, welcome to ask their questions via two methods. First, by typing in the Q&A chat box on Zoom, or second, to use the raise hand function on Zoom and we'll proceed to unmute you so you may ask your question. Now it gives me great pleasure to introduce our speakers for today. First off, we have Dr. Guy Burton, who is an adjunct professor at the Brussels School of Governance and also a fellow on the sectarianism, proxies and desectarianization project at Lancaster University. His research interests deal with the politics and international relations of the Middle East with a particular focus on the role of rising powers. He is also the author of China and Middle East Conflicts under Routledge and released just last year, and also the author of Rising Powers and Arab-Israeli Conflicts since 1947. Also, a warm welcome to Dr. Zhang Chuchu, an Associate Professor at the School of International Relations and Public Affairs, Fudan University, China. She received her PhD in politics and international studies from the University of Cambridge, and her research focuses on Middle Eastern politics, China-Middle Eastern relations, and China's foreign policy. She's the author of Islamist Party Mobilization, Tunisia's Ehnada and Algeria's HMS Compare, 1989-2014. Also joining us today as a speaker is my colleague, Dr. Alessandro Arduino, the Principal Research Fellow at MEINUS. He is the Co-Director of the Security and Crisis Management International Center at the Shanghai Academy of Social Science and an external associate at Lao China Institute, King's College London. He has two decades of experience in China encompassing security analysis and crisis management. Last but not least, we also welcome Dr. Tugru Keskin, who is Professor and Director of the Center for Gov Global Governance and Shanghai at Shanghai University. Professor Keskin has taught in 
Turkey and a number of American universities. His research and teaching interests include international and global studies, social and political theory, African society and politics, sociology of human rights, and sociology of the Middle East. So without further ado, now that I've done all the introductions prim and proper, let us now get into the central topic at hand. Our first presenter for today is Dr. Guy Burton. And Guy, in your recently released China and Middle East Conflicts book, you wrote that the Middle East is a test bit for Chinese foreign policy. And elsewhere, you also wrote that China in the region, its role has been threefold, supporter, shirker, and spoiler. You also pointed to an increasingly multipolar and competitive nature of the region's international system. So as such, besides using the historical context to give us a complete picture, could you explain China's role in the region uh, according to the geopolitical dynamics of the Middle East? And if you could also kindly outline in your presentation the whole concept of peace through development that China has adopted, where you could actually present an alternative model to the West. So Guy, the stage is all yours. Well, thank you very much, Clemens, and also thank you very much to the Middle East Institute at NUS for inviting me to participate in this. This is wonderful. And, um, you know, in the eight minutes that I have, I mean, if I just give a very sweeping, you know, sort of survey of China in the Middle East, because I'm sure you know, my colleagues are going to drill down into a much more, you know, uh, detailed account of some of the specifics. I mean, to start with, um, you know, I want to sort of provide some historical context to China in the Middle East um, to understand where we are today. Um, much of the focus has been, there's been a great deal of interest and focus on China in the Middle East in the past few years, um, especially in, in the context of its rising power and also the Belt and Road. But um, the key thing I want to say is that number one, you know, China is not a new actor to the Middle East. It has a history that goes back to the 1950s, but the relationship has changed. Uh, and number two, it's also very important, you know, for those who live in the Middle East, those of us who study the Middle East, who make the Middle East our, our focus of work, you know, that we don't overstate things. Um, you know, the Middle East is important, but as, as far as China is concerned, it is still a secondary, you know, area of concern. You know, once, it's, once you factor in things like, you know, the mainland, the periphery around China, sort of Taiwan, Xinjiang, the near, near neighborhood, you know, Middle East still comes further down the list. And so we've got to see that in the context of, of China's, you know, wider, you know, global ambitions. So, um, you know, to talk about, uh, just to provide a quick overview of China, how we've reached the point of China today. China has had a history in the Middle East that dates back to the 1950s, um, you know, during the, during the course of the Cold War, in which it was in competition, not just with uh, the United States, but also with the Soviet Union. And it was the junior partner to the Soviet Union. So in that sense, it was competing with the Soviets for influence, especially among some of the more radical nationalist uh, regimes, such as Gamal Nasser in Egypt. But because it wasn't able to have the same kind of military heft, diplomatic weight that the, the Soviets had, it also had to reach out to, to significant non-state actors like the Algerian uh, liberation nationalist movement, uh, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, um, you know, the Eritrean uh, nationalists and in the gut and in the in the Arabian Peninsula, um, the Dafari uh, in independence movement as well. And so it was very active in supporting these insurgent groups and providing, you know, not substantial, but some some degree of financial and military support. Um, 
in, 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 in order for them to advance their, their goals and providing some political support as well. Things start to change from the early 1970s. I think there is a certain degree of changes happening both within China as well as you know, in the Middle East. Within China, of course, uh, there is the ending of the Cultural Revolution, of the, ideolo the, the ideological polarization that has happened, the Mao's slow, um, slow moving off the stage, and also within you know, the Middle East and the wider, wider, wider global politics, there is the, you know, a, a rapprochement between the United States and, and, and China. So you see a shift. Whereas before um, China's relationship towards the Middle East was primarily driven by politics and ideology, from the 1970s and into the 80s, it becomes more economic and diplomatic. It starts to build relations with you know, the, in, the individual states in the region. Um, and from the 1980s, and especially from 1993, once it becomes an oil importer, a net oil importer, you know, it become, the, the region becomes significant, a significant economic space. Uh, that, at that point, you know, stability becomes much more important than you know, uh, becoming a challenger, which relates, refers back to the point that Clemens asked in the, in the opening questions about this idea of supporters, shirkers, and spoilers when it comes to um, uh, you know, rising powers relationships towards the Middle East. What you have is China being a bit of a spoiler in the 60s, late 60s and early 70s and shifting towards, uh, an, towards a role that it's, I would say supportive of stability, um, but shirking from providing any kind of um, you know, security support for that. So what, I mean, what you see, especially after the Cold War and in the American unipolar moment, obviously the point, high point of you know, American hubris is the invasion of Iraq in 2003. And yet, you know, America is unable to uh, ensure uh, a successful occupation on its terms. But what is interesting is a lot of the business contracts uh, with, that were signed were signed with the Chinese. Now, the Chinese benefited from those economic exchanges without necessarily having to, to, to do much of the heavy lifting when it came to security, which prompted Obama in around 2014, 2015 to call China a, a free rider. So that role of being a shirker. And that is very much the relationship that, that the position that China has had until recently. Um, even as its rise has, has in the last, I would say, in the, in the course of the Xi Jinping uh, government since 2012, you know, we are in the period of the Belt and Road Initiative, which was, was given, given um, notice in 2013. And there we have China very much emphasizing economic exchange, economic cooperation, um, emphasizing the fact that its, its primary concern is working with these states. Therefore, it can bridge the gap between the, the divisions that exist within again, referring to the to Clemens question about multipolar competition. If you think about Saudi Arabia and Iran as a major rivalry uh, within the region, China is able to bridge that gap by saying it will work with the Saudis, it will work with the Iranians, um, but on economic issues. Um, that may well be coming to an end. Uh, Belt and Road you know, has been presented as a win-win, mutually beneficial project. But I think given the fact that it has finite resources and given the fact that it's certain countries that are benefiting more than others, i.e. the stable ones, uh, this is going to create competition. So in a way, China's own project may fuel competition. And we are starting to see Chinese um, officials talking about what can China do, you know, now that it is no longer just a rising power, but a risen power really in the Middle East, what can it do to, you know, to, to counter uh, a lot of the conflicts that is taking place there? And this is where the concept of peace through development has, has started to emerge. Um, the idea that Belt and Road can contribute towards this, this, this effort 
Um, the idea being that you know, the, the, the way that Beijing sees it, the conflicts are primarily driven through inequality, a lack of sufficient development, and Belt and Road with its infrastructure projects, its connectivity can help you know, uh, develop, encourage development within local communities, within societies, and therefore uh, overcome uh, any divisions that exist. In some respects, this is an echo of China's own development model post-1978. Um, Although the Chinese often emphasize the fact that you know China is not that that's no country should try and model itself exactly on China, you can draw the lessons and experience from that. Um, so I, I think those. I mean, I'm coming up to my last minute. So I guess the main point is to just say this: that China is currently at a state of uh, possible transition in terms of its, its in terms of its role in the Middle East, and I think this is something we're going to talk about in a bit more detail. It is now shifting away from having shirked, having avoided um, any kind of you know, involvement in terms of security provisions, security guarantees, uh, focusing on economics, that may well be starting to change. But the final point that I must stress, and this is why you know, we often talk about China as a new actor, it is not a new actor, it's just that its roles have changed. Thank you. Thank you, Guy, for your most insightful presentation. I guess we have to hold our questions for now as we proceed to the next speaker, Dr. Zhang Chu Chu. Chu Chu, in some of your works, you identified how Beijing has its role adjusted in its foreign policy from a low profile stance, commonly known as Taoguang Yanghui, to a more proactive posture, also known as Fen Fa Yu Wei, or you know, to, to forge ahead, strive ahead. Uh, could you tell us more about the evolving Chinese official narrative towards the mid Middle East? And has this been translated into reality and genuine action on the ground? And if so, to what degree? Chushu, all yours. Okay, thank you so much, Clemens. And thank you so much for organizing this event. Uh, well, uh, from my own perspective, in order to observe um, China's role in the Middle East, I think, um, first of all, it is important to understand at least um, two points. So the first point is how China views the role of the Middle East in China's diplomatic strategies. And the second is how China perceives its own role in the region of the Middle East. Well, um, in recent years, many observers are talking about China's growing presence in the Middle East and are worried about its ambition to probably become a competitor of the United States in the region, or even become a new hegemon in the region. However, if you search the keywords like China's presence in Africa, or China's presence in Latin America, or in South Asia, in Eastern Europe, uh, et cetera, in Google, you will find many similar articles because China um, today has already become a big power in the world and also it has proposed the Belt and Road Initiative. So for many observers, it seems that China's presence is growing in every corner of the world. Um, but this is not necessarily true. Um, if you look at what has exactly happened in the Middle East, you will find that although China's presence there is somehow evolving, its economic interactions with the Maghreb region, for instance, are by no means comparable to France. And also China's interactions with the Gulf countries are not comparable to the United States. 
So um, China's limited emphasis on the region and its limited influence in the region is at least due to two reasons. First, as many scholars have noted, um, the Middle East's rank in China's diplomatic priority is not very high. Although many foreign media describe China as a global power, and even some Chinese people acknowledge that, actually China is more of an inward looking country and pays more attention to its domestic politics than international politics. While China has core interests in its neighboring countries as there are territorial disputes and also the neighboring countries can have an impact on the Chinese residents living at the border. So China pays much attention to uh, the neighboring countries. And actually, as you may know, the Belt and Road Initiative, although today it becomes a global initiative, but at first it was proposed as an, uh, as an initiative um, that is going to deal with the relations between China and its neighboring countries. Also, um, China pays much attention to big power relations, including its relations with the United States, uh, the EU countries and Russia. But in the Middle East, China does not have many core interests. So as China has too many things to worry about, it cannot pay too much attention um, to the Middle Eastern affairs. Well, the second reason why China, uh, China has limited influence and attention to the region of the Middle East is that uh, many areas in the Middle East are characterized by high political risks. So um, China advances with great cautions and hesitance in significant increase of investment in the region. So it's always cautious and hesitant. And then um, the next question is how China views its honor role in the Middle East. So what does itself expect that it's going to do in the region? Well, according to my own research, there has been a change, um, but it is not that China used to adopt the economic diplomacy and now it has become a geopolitical player as many observers um, point out. Well, actually, when China carried out the policy of the reform and opening up in the late 1970s, um, China started to adopt the economic policy towards the Middle East, which generally means um, to do business with every Middle Eastern country, and meanwhile, avoiding getting involved in um, the region's conflicts, just as what um, Guy has mentioned. Well, as a result of this non-interference policy, China successfully becomes the only big power that is a friend to every country um, in this region. However, after implementing the economic diplomacy for decades, um, China suffered from two challenges. First, um, China has been criticized as a free rider in the region, and many foreign observers uh, or commentators label China as an irresponsible power, uh, which does not care about what's going on in the region. And second, China faces huge losses when regional conflicts arise and affect China's investment and construction projects there. So um, for instance, after um, the Arab Spring erupted in 2011, China faces huge losses, first in Libya and then in Yemen. And in this context, more and more diplomats and the intellectuals realize that a side effect of avoiding entanglement in the region's conflict is that when the conflict takes place, 
you can do nothing. You may not even have a clue of what's going on, and you are totally excluded from the post-conflict negotiation. And in the end, you can't even protect your own economic interests. So currently, China's role and policy in the region is changing. Um, a lot of people in China realize that non-interference does not mean doing nothing. And many people suggest that China needs to take a more proactive policy. However, the problem is how to take a more proactive policy and what does uh, being proactive means. So um, on the one hand, China does not want to abandon the benefits it gained from the zero enemy policy. It hopes to maintain its friendship with every Middle Eastern country. But if you increase the political presence in the region, it's very likely that you may take sides in the end. And on the other hand, um, a challenge for China today when dealing with the Middle East is that if it stays away from the conflicts, from the region's um, political issues, it will be criticized as a free rider. But if it increases its political presence, then it will be criticized as a power uh, which is going to compete with the United States or replace it as a new dominator or a hegemon in the region. So now China has a strategy completely different from the United States. Instead of making allies with um, certain countries or supporting proxies in the region, it believes that neither foreign intervention nor democracy can really solve the problems of the region. While there is already too much rather than too little intervention in the region, political and military intervention only make things more difficult and complicated. Also, democracy does not um, really help improve anything, at least in many um, intellectuals' eyes. Um, this was, there was the Arab Spring in 2011. It was about democracy, but now it becomes an Arab winter. So from China's perspective, um, conflicts in the Middle East do not result from a lack of foreign interference, but result from the region's development issues. However, uh, no big power seems to really care about the development issues in the region. So why don't we take a different approach? Why don't we help the region with its economic growth? Why don't we develop together? At least everybody wants to develop uh, and want to have economic growth. So for now, just forget about the sectarian disputes. Um, well, in this way, um, each Middle Eastern country can have more revenues and the people will have jobs and China can also get economic benefits from it. So um, for many intellectuals in China, it seems to be a win-win prospect. Um, well, based on this analysis, my research shows that for now, China will continue to adopt the economic diplomacy in the region and in the short term, um, it doesn't want um, or it has no plan to take a security role in the region, but it will implement the economic diplomacy in a more proactive manner. Um, and what does being proactive mean? It means that China is going to provide more aid packages to the region and like what it has done um, in, the, uh, in, the pan in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic, it has provided a lot of um, health aid packages um, to the region. Um, and also, um, for many decision makers' perspective, the Sino-Middle Eastern relations are not just about doing business today, but about developing together. So uh, China may uh, assume its responsibility by paying more attention to the development issues, to invest 
uh, in the investment um, development and to um, also investment, but also to increase its investment in the um, digital development or in the digital technology in the region, and also to help create uh, more jobs there. And it helps that the economic development in the region can finally help reduce the instability in the region and also help to reduce um, the political risks um, for China's uh, companies uh, in the region. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Chu Chu, for clarifying and giving us an insightful account of China's priorities and its strategies and the nuances in its foreign policy. What was also interesting in some of your work is that you, you noted that China has 21 levels of bilateral diplomatic relations, of which Middle Eastern countries fed pretty well. Um, Turkey in fourth place, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Iran, and the UAE sharing fifth place, Qatar, Sudan, Jordan, Kuwait, Oman, and Iraq in the seventh place. And for our audience's information, Singapore ranks 10th on, on this bilateral diplomatic relations ranking list. So this brings us to the presentation of our third speaker, my colleague, Dr. Alessandro Arduino, who will bring us, you know, take a step forward to discuss the digital Silk Road and how it is distinguished from the Belt and Road Initiative. At the core of this discussion is, of course, the idea that there is a, a bifurcation in the realm of information and security technology systems, or a line dividing US allied liberal democracies and others who depend on Chinese ICT, information communication technology. So my colleague Alex will, will be covering the realm of technology. Alex, the, the stage is yours. Thank you very much, Clement. So uh, basically, uh, as my distinguished colleague already mentioned, I want to start with to take out one from Guy that China is not a new actor in the Middle East. And this also applies to the digital Silk Road. And uh, another take out uh, from Chu Chu that uh, is uh, China uh, is, yes, is cautious in the Middle East, but uh, in the realm of digital ecosystem is definitely more assertive. First question is, what is the digital Silk Road? If we look at the digital Silk Road, uh, mainly uh, in the common perception is just the 5G part of the Belt and Road Initiative, is an appendix of the Belt and Road Initiative. And um, it's not the case. Again, DSR or digital Silk Road uh, is an all-encompassing label, but differ in some respect from the Belt and Road Initiative. It overlaps. Uh, uh, but is have a different outreach, and especially in the Middle East. And this uh, today presentation, I would like to look at two specific cases: one interaction of the digital Silk Road with Israel, and one with the UAE. Uh, again, digital Silk Road is not only 5G. All the focus mainly, and especially in the Middle East, is related to the US-China competition for ICT supremacy. And if a country is going to align on the side of Huawei or not. Uh, as Clemens mentioned uh, in the beginning of, of uh, the introduction of my presentation, uh, what is the worst outcome that can come out in the Middle East and also uh, in the rest of the world for a technological confrontation? between the US and China. And it will be a split into of uh, uh, the supply chain, uh, of the microchip uh, logistic chain, of the rare art, but most important, uh, at the coupling of the digital ecosystem. 
hopefully is not going to happen, but countries in the Middle East already started to try to balance the economic, financial and trade needs in the digital realm with the national security one. And there are already different outcomes if we look, for example, at Israel, or if we look at the Emirates, or just a few days ago, if we look at the background of Minister Wang Yi visit uh, in Saudi Arabia, uh, it was uh, in the futuristic city of Neom in which uh, the kingdom is going to invest the staggering uh, amount of 500 billion to develop uh, a new diversified business model in what is called a cognitive futuristic city. Uh, COVID-19 has increased the necessity of, uh, from the digital realm, from telemedicine to e-learning, and this accelerates several processes that were already ongoing, especially in the GCC country. The trend in moving from uh, hydrocarbon rentier economy to new economy was already there, but COVID-19 ignited it, and Chinese digital Silk Road uh, is an important present inside the development of the economy of this country. But again, what is the digital Silk Road? It's not only 5G. Uh, the term digital Silk Road is quite new compared to the Belt and Road Initiative. We see it appear in 2015 in the document, in the vision of the uh, Belt and Road Initiative, uh, just uh, as a information Silk Road. Uh, but the real uh, uh, label, encompassing label of Digital Silk Road start to appear in 2017 uh, in the International Conference of UGEN, in which eight countries, including the Emirates, sign an MOU in develop uh, with China research uh, on uh, advanced technology, including AI, quantum computing, uh, GPS positioning system, satellite, and so on. And this trend uh, has seen an increase present of digital technology from China in the Middle East. The different, one of the different between the Digital Silk Road and the Belt and Road Initiative is that the Belt and Road is still carried on by state-owned enterprises, while the Digital Silk Road is more on the hand and also on the financial hand of the private sector. Of course, if we want to talk about the difference between private sector in the US and in China, uh, we need another conference just for this. But having said that, uh, there are companies that are spearheading the digital Silk Road, uh, Huawei, ZTE, Xiaomi, Tencent, uh, that already have a quite deep inroad in the GCC. Uh, as I mentioned before, uh, the relationship with Israel is another story. It's a relationship in which China is not trying only to sell its own technology, but uh, is trying to acquire uh, Israeli technology. Israel, who is considered the startup nation, uh, has increased the, the partnership in terms of venture capital uh, with the Chinese side, but still uh, US venture capital in Israel. It's uh, at very high level of investment. And we don't have to forget that since the 2000, the Israel defensive system uh, has been uh, uh, trying to uh, constrain any kind of military transfer, high technological transfer uh, to China, especially the one related to dual use certification. Uh, on this respect, uh, as I mentioned before, digital Silk Road essentially is not only 5G, but it can be divided basically in four pillars. 
and we can see these four pillars along uh, uh, the Middle East from the GCC and even uh, to the broader area in, uh, in the MENA region. First pillar is uh, infrastructure. Of course, 5 and 6G is an important part, but it's also uh, cable, fiber optic cable, connecting uh, big data, uh, underwater cable, satellite cable. Beidou, uh, the satellite system from China, the GPS part uh, is, uh, is fully operational. And then a second part uh, moving from infrastructure is the so-called e-pillars. And by pillars, uh, I mean e-governance, e-commerce, and especially fintech. And this is quite important for countries like the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia or UAE that aim to be the core or the fintech revolution in the Middle East. Last but not least is the development of a smart city, internet of things, and big data computation and analytical center. Again, the competition is direct with US investment, but also in the realm of telecommunication, we already witnessed a diversification uh, with, uh, for example, the UAE trying to edge between putting all the egg in one basket with China uh, and giving space to other players. So Huawei is one of the main players, but also Nokia and Ericsson, for example, are important developers of the ICT infrastructure uh, in the UAE. Also, the security implication. Uh, cybersecurity, uh, control uh, of the local population, uh, visual face recognition is an important part of the technology transfer from China to the Middle East, including Israel. Uh, Companies that are not well known, like Huawei, for example, but like the company in Hangzhou, like Higvision, are the world leading uh, in uh, circuit camera with uh, automatic visual recognition. And these play quite an important part in the security structure of each country. So to summarize my take on the digital Silk Road is the digital competition with the US is already putting several constraints in Gulf country and in all the Middle East in making a choice in being with China or uh, without China. Of course, it creates problem in the business sector as most of the business are looking at Chinese component as widely available and at a very competitive price, while the national security part of each country is looking at the security implication that carry on having Chinese equipment inside the country and how it is going to play with the United States. Worst case scenario is a complete split up in two of the digital ecosystem. And uh, on this, I just would like to conclude my brief presentation, quoting uh, Lee Hsien Long, the Prime Minister of Singapore, that mentioned just a few months ago that bifurcation in technology, bifurcation in market, and bifurcation is trust is a very bad outcome for all the world. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to my colleague Alex for providing the finer details of the digital Silk Road. And it remains to be seen whether China will keep up with the trend of a fourth industrial revolution. Uh, so now we move on to our final presentation by Professor Tobru Keskin. Uh, Professor Keskin would like to shed light on the relations between Turkey and China, given your expertise, and also talk a bit about the degree of competition or cooperation between the two sides. Um, in the Chinese foreign minister's recent visit to Ankara, there was much praise lavished on the Chinese vaccine. Uh, 
But earlier this month as well, President Erdogan has also announced a human rights action plan. So, so in your opinion, what, what lies ahead for Turkey-China relations? Professor Kaskin is yours. The floor is yours. Can you, can you hear me? Yes. Can you hear me? Loud and clear. Yeah. Uh, okay. Thank you very much for the invitation. Um, uh, I mean, Sino-Turkish relations is a little bit different than the other countries in the region. Um, probably similar to, you know, Israel, uh, uh, from my understanding, at least. Uh, Sino-Turkish relations occupy a critical juncture in China's push in the Middle East. Let's not forget this. Uh, and in Turkey's evolving foreign policy under the Erdogan government and JDP, despite the geographical and cultural distance between them, Turkey's geostrategic placement, regional influence, and regionally strong economy are attractive to China, actually. From the Turkish perspective, a closer relationship with China represents a path to diversification away from the reliance upon Western countries, particularly considering its own strain relation with the European Union and NATO, actually. This is a multifaceted and complicated relationship between China and Turkey, as well as the, you know, the Turkey and NATO and the United States. Since October 2010, the two partners have defined their bilateral ties as a strategic cooperative relationship. Although cooperation between the two does exist, it is questionable as whether it rises to strategic level. Pro problems persist where national interests on both sides collide actually. During this tenure as Foreign Minister Davutoğlu, the previous one basically under the, you know, the AKP government, now if you form a different party today, he is, he is, he is is challenging the uh, JDP government and aspire to develop democracy with democracy with the European Union standard and production style with the Chinese standards. Um, within the vein of the China model or Beijing consensus, Turkey views China as a both a partner and an example of the development to be emulated. Um, and particularly after the Eurozone crisis um, and, and integrating with Europe has become the less attractive than that of China, to say nothing to traumatic tra experience of the Turkey's own bid to join the EU actually. But on the popular level, however, Turks hold a negative perception of China. Let's not forget. Uh, also, we have a negative perception of the United States as well. We have the highest negative perception of the United States after Palestine in the world. In 2017, Pew poll, 54% of the Turks expressed an unfavorable view of the China, a measure of the dis disapproval that has not descended below 50% since 2006, actually. What fostered this, this states when the Turkish elites appear so keen to improve the relationship, actually? So, uh, important issue between Turkey and, the, Turkey and China, Uyghur issue, actually. Xinjiang issue. Public attitudes in Turkey hinge about the Uyghurs due to close ethnic and linguistic ties between Turks and Uyghurs. This emerged as a contentious issue for the Sino-Turkish relations under the circumstances, especially uh, uh, between US and China um, Cold War um, and Turkish relations since the radical Islamic groups emerged in Central Asia after the collapse of the Soviet Union. The increasing radicalization and Salafization of the Chinese Muslim communities has generated communal unrest within China. On the other hand, since the Justice and Development Party came to power in early 2000, Turkey has played an active role in championing the Muslim rights externally, 
this approach, given the anti-sovereignty discourse, in engenders you know, the Chinese suspicions actually on this subject. Let's not forget. Turkey officially supported the Uyghur separatist movement until the Bülent Ecevit government prohibited their operations in 1998 to improve the Sino-Turkish relations. And let's not forget, this year is the 50th anniversary of the recognition of the, you know, the China and Turkey to each other um, in, in, in 58 years. And uh, yet when unrest in Urumqi, the capital of the Xinjiang, emerged in 2009, Prime Minister Erdogan, current uh, president basically, termed the incident as almost genocide. The Turkish government, however, took no steps to demote relations. Rhetoric with no actions has become paradigmatic as the how the Turkish government handles the Uyghur issue vis-a-vis -vis with China. The Chinese government in turn did not react to rhetoric from Ankara. The Turkish government had to react to domestic sentiments, but neither side saw the break in the relations over this issue basically. This is a very important issue basically. It's like the you know, um, elephant in the room between China and Turkey's relations. Also, you know, the China's relation with the Middle Eastern and Muslim populated countries as well. While Beijing concern regarding Turkey's position on the Chinese territorial integrity have been elevated, the problem of the Uyghur immigrants to Turkey remains contentious. China has actively sought the return of many of them as primary destination with the massive Turkish public support of their asylum. Turkey and China will not find the common ground. In 2015, Beijing alleged Turkey having an active role in assisting the illegal immigration of Uyghurs from China. The Chinese government originally kept the communication with the Turkey over this issue private in an attempt to avoid damaging relations, a sign of how important the bilateral relationship has become actually. Though sympathy for the Uyghurs permeates the Turkish political landscape, different political parties prioritize the issue differently. With this pan-Turkic sentiment, the Nationalist Movement Party holds xenophobic views after negative media reports of the, uh, about the Uyghurs in China in 2015. MHP members attack the Chinese properties and tourists in Turkey. With the AKP need to maintain good relation with China and the MHP critical attitude being part of the same government after the 2018 elections. The result, foreign policy is amalgamation that pleases no one actually. This become uh, apparent in February 2019, when the Turkish Minister of Foreign Affairs in February they announced the policy of the systematic assimilation of the Uyghurs after contradictory reports of the death of a famous Uyghur singer poet. Um, uh, uh, this was a very important poet basically in, in China and as well as in Turkey. But this was a fake news actually. Um, therefore, we should, you know, I think Turkish official and Turkish public, public should pay attention to Radio Free Asia's uh, uh, mispropaganda, basically. Taking place very close to March local election, the statement catered to domestic audiences, but sparked a fierce response from the Beijing, actually. Uh, let's not forget. Um, and although there was no concrete follow-up, over the last few years, the Turkish approach to Uyghur issue is restrained refrain from the supporting separatist ideologies, but advocate for the Uyghur rights within the framework of the People's Republic of China. This stance can be characterized as a quasi-critical engagement, permitting the Turkish politician to cater to both their domestic and constituents, as well as maintaining positive relation with China, actually. Given Turkey's NATO membership, developing extensive military ties to China, presents substantial risk 
for the Turkey's um, traditional defense relationship, frank uh, ties, especially United States, especially with NATO, especially in you know, a neoconservative elite inside the Beltway, basically, um, and have prodded Turkey to turn as well for the military supplies to demonstrate its independence. One of them is China, basically. The other one is Russia. Joint military operation to Uncommon have taken place in 2010 between China and Turkey. China joined you know, the Anatolian Eagle exercise and NATO operation alongside Israeli forces. In the middle of the Turkey, Konya is a very religious town, actually. The inclusion of the China symbolizes substantial upgrade in military ties, as well as willingness to back Western demands in the military arena, especially after Turkey prohibited the Israeli participation. Uh, uh, therefore, the signal that Turkey maintains option beyond NATO, actually. Uh, Turkey is looking for, you know, the, another partner or another alliance for themselves, basically. Additionally, Turkey has sought an air defense missile system during the past decade. As a NATO member, uh, and let's not forget, Turkey became a NATO member in 1952. Let's not forget, 1952. Uh, it, was a, it was a coincidence, actually, uh, by, the, you know, by the United States. Uh, Turkish ambassador in, in Moscow in 19, uh, early, late 1940s, they sent a message to the, you know, Ankara, actually. Uh, his name is Selim Sarper. <clears throat> um, uh, Selim Sarper sent, you know, the special note to the Ankara, uh, Turkish foreign ministry, um, and, and telling them uh, uh, Soviet Union asking for the, you know, the northwest part, northeast part of Turkey and plus Bosphorus and, you know, the, those areas uh, from, the, from the government. But this was not true. This has never been proved, actually. The same ambassador brought back to the Turkey, became the second person of the, you know, the Turkish uh, foreign minister. Later, he became an ambassador to United Nations and stayed there 10 years. After the US military supported coup in 1960, basically, he became the foreign minister of the Turkey. And Turkey joined the NATO, basically. It was very interesting, uh, complicated process between Turkey and NATO. And additionally, Turkey sought an air defense missile system during the past decade. As a NATO member, the American Patriot missile system would have been the obvious choice over Russian, Chinese, and European competition. Yet the Turks initially offered a contract, a US uh, $3 billion US dollars, to a Chinese company for the HQ-9 defense system. This deal arose fierce resistance from the United States, especially the security establishment inside the Beltway and some of the, you know, the military industrial complex. Both on technical grounds, whether or not it could be integrated with the NATO system, and on political grounds, as the Chinese producer was under American sanction for dealing with Iran. So, so the deal was scrapped in 2015. It's still damaged relation with the NATO. Uh, finally, Turkey has been a dialogue partner in the Shanghai Cooperation Organization since 2012, although it has sought uh, higher level of the membership failed the missile defense missile system contract of 2015 while Xi Jinping, President Xi Jinping was visiting Turkey, remain a potent negative memory and lesson for the Chinese regarding the eventual difficulties to integrate Turkey. Thus, even if the Turks seek to overcome dependence on NATO through the in improving military ties with China, the Chinese consider Turkey NATO ties as a factor that prevents actual military cooperation, actually. Um, President Erdogan, 2015 visit to China, cemented that, cemented that trade is the centerpiece of the relationship as contentious issues were sidelined in favor of the development discussions. 
Bilateral trade in 2000 only totaled $1 billion and has expanded significantly since. Nantes of the plateau has been rich during the past decade. Turkish export to China hovers the around $2.5 billion and China represents Turkey's single largest source of the imports. On the other hand, bilateral trade peaked in 2013 at $28.29 billion. It has decreased since, but without any sustained drops. Optimistic goals about reaching almost $100 billion uh, by 2025 remain out of reach, basically. The only source of the economic friction remains the grap gapping trade deficit peaking at the USD, $23 billion USD in 2016. The two economies are structured differently and imagine Turkish export portfolio that will elevate the deficit is not simple. Turkey export little of interest to Chinese consumers, investment flows, particularly under the Belt and Road Initiative, an increasing level of tourism and could reinstate the deficit of the capital and into the Turkish economy, basically. China has sought to drive more tourists to Turkey. 2018 was declared as a Turkey tourism year and the number of the Chinese tourists increased from less than 100,000 in 2011 to 400,000 tourists that year. As an economy heavily reliant on the tourism, this marks an important step in the improvement of the economic ties. Also demonstrate how damaging in incidents like May MHP attacks on the Chinese tourists or Korean tourists basically by mistake in, in 2015. Uh, Turkey has also been recipient of the Chinese capital directly. For example, China invested $750 million into Istanbul Ankara High Speed Railway project which included transfer of the relevant technology to Turkey. Turkey is actively partnered with the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, obtaining almost $1.4 billion investment over the course of 2018. Furthermore, China has directly transferred funds to Turkey under the currency swap agreement, with one taking place around the politically sensitive local elect elections. These transfers could be interpreted as both a political and economic gesture. In the last, uh, despite desire and efforts to improve relations, structural factors undermine the ability for China and Turkey. Both sides, they don't trust each other for different reasons, or maybe for the same reason. Thus, current relations appear to have a hit platter over the, of, the, you know, of the sports. The Turkish public remains distinctly sympathetic to Uyghur separatists, because given their extensive linguistic ethnic ties, Chinese conversely consider criticism of what they perceive as a domestic policies as, a, as unacceptable. At the same time, military ties have been established, but only in general sense, and Turkey remains a dialogue partner in the SCO. The economic front appears to be most pro promising real, uh, for continued progress, yet levels of the bilateral trade have not grown substantially in years uh, despite ambitious goals. The trade relationship is also very balanced, steps to rem remedy uh, this have been taken through the there's a lot of ground of the makeup basically but from my understanding both sides uh including in this trip Wang Yi, uh, foreign minister Wang Yi's trip and meeting with the president Erdogan and, and Mevlut Çavuşoğlu uh, I don't think these trips it's you know the, has helped uh, Turkey and China relations as much as uh helped you know the Iran and China relations recent visit to Iran basically or other countries basically but we will see in the future what will happen Turkey relations with the West is declining um and as a result of the you know the United States is supporting the Kurdish terrorist movement creating you know the uh terrorist state in Syria and Iraq 
United States in same way, supporting the Uyghur separatist movement, divide the China. I think China and Turkey, they can find a common ground from my, my own observation, besides, you know, the economy. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you, Professor Keskin, for outlining Turkish-China relations. And thank you to all of our speakers for all your respective presentations. We now enter the Q&A segment. Um, we do have a couple of questions coming in. And, and while our audience is fine-tuning and adjusting their thinking cap, uh, and I would like to remind our audience that you can actually type your questions into the Zoom chat box or raise your hand, and we can unmute you to ask your question. So right now we do have a few questions coming in and the first one is more of an observation. I'm gonna tie in with, with a question that I have as well. So the first comment that we have is from, the, from Dr. Zeno Leone, uh, who is based at the King's College London Defense Studies Department. And Dr. Leone says that she was intrigued by Chang Chu's point that China's engagement with the region is uneven or limited. And, and there's an inference, you know, from this point of view that in the West, they tend to describe the BRI as if it was such a huge, perfectly calculated grand strategic plan, which the media also associates with. However, the picture in the comment, as, as stated in the comment, is more multifaceted than than, than actually carefully calculated. So that's a comment, and I would like to tie this into more something more related to the Middle East, the regional dynamics being uh, subsumed under a great power rivalry between uh, the US and China, and how uh, a new Biden administration will actually change things or not. So I'd like to invite our speakers to comment uh, on, on, on these observations and also to respond to the question. So we'll probably start with our first presenter earlier, uh, Guy. Would you like to unmute yourself to, to answer these questions? Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I mean, if I may, just to you know, touch upon uh, Zeno's uh, question there. I mean, I know it's, it's directed to you, but you know, I think it's, it's worth reiterating that you know, China's presence in the Middle East is, you know, it is not a uniform one. And you can see that in the nature of the, 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 the relationships that it has with individual states. Um, you know that it has signed comprehensive strategic partnerships which is kind of the highest form of engagement that it has with i think only about five countries so those would be you know saudi arabia iran the uae um algeria egypt uh and 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 Tugrul will, will correct me whether it's turkey or not um but certainly a lot of the you know chinese investment finance economic activity takes place and is concentrated you know in the gulf um, and also with with Israel, but that has, so that has meant that other countries like Syria and Libya, you know, these conflict prone you know, affected countries have lost out. Although you will notice, um, you know, the efforts of those of, of the leaderships to try and sort of emphasize the role of of their relationship with the Chinese, that they would like the Chinese to come in and invest, um, you know, as part of reconstruction and rebuilding. Um, and this is very much sort of showing that they have other options. And I think this kind of kind of ties in a little bit with the. You know, a lot of the discussion has been happening in the last couple of days vis-a-vis uh, -vis Iran and whether or not there is a 400 billion you know, dollar deal on the table, which 
seems questionable, but it's very much Iran playing it up to emphasize that it has, you know, options, you know, if, if American sanctions continue. So this kind of swiftly brings me into the content, into the point that you asked Clemens about, you know, America's role. I don't think that, yes, maybe America is in decline, but it's not leaving the region. And, you know, within the Beltway, within Washington, there is a lot of discussion about, um, you know, can America pivot from the Middle East to the to to the Far East? And if so, does that mean it is ceding the ground to, you know, to others like Chinese and Russia, the Chinese and, and the Russians? Uh, this idea that somehow the American tide goes out and the Chinese tide comes in. I don't think it's as simple and clear cut as that. I mean, we've discussed this you know, in terms of security terms. The Chinese, you know, are a bit more ambivalent about, you know, taking on the American role. Um, Certainly, but we are seeing the Americans bringing their containment strategy into the Middle East. They have put pressure on the Israelis in terms of their relationship, their, their economic relationships and contracts, and Alex has alluded to that. And increasingly, we have started to see some of that in the UAE. Um, whether that is going to actually be viable in the long term is, is debatable. I mean, certainly some of those in, the, in, in Washington see you know, the Abraham Accords, for example, the normalization deal between the UAE and Israel as a that's the start of, a, of, a, of an Arab-Israeli alliance against Iran. And yet there is very much possibility that the Chinese see this you know, as, as an opportunity to come in and to work with existing partners, which could go counter to American interests. So really the Americans have a choice on the table. It's either continue to contain the China, which, will, which won't necessarily be to its benefit, or it can try and work with it on files that, where there is mutual interest. Uh, they won't agree on everything, but there is an interest, you know, jointly to see greater um, stability within the region. Thank you. Thank you, Guy. True, uh, true. Would you like to add to add on to what Guy has just said, please? Yeah. Uh, thank you, Clemens, and thank you for uh, Dr. Lewin's uh, question and comments. Yeah. Uh, first of all, um, just as um, Dr. Lewin's um, comment, indeed, actually. Um, Although a lot of commentators um, think that China, um, China's foreign policy making is somehow like top-down thing and it's like a well-organized, well-calculated strategy um, before it was even proposed, but actually it's not necessarily the case. Uh, actually, um, usually when China, um, this is how it works uh, when it makes decisions. So for instance, when it proposes um, a big idea such as the Boston Road Initiative. Um, first of all, um, well, the top leadership is going to just propose a broad idea, um, but without a lot of detailed substance, without a lot of um, detailed content. Um, and then there is going to be a lot of discussions, debates between the intellectuals, between the government officials, and between different um, um, yeah, between different um, part, uh, different parties in China. And then uh, it's going to evolve, uh, yeah, it, and, and it becomes what it's like today. So it's not something like well-organized and well-calculated um, at the very beginning. So let's say, uh, let's set an example of the Belt and Road Initiative, for instance. At the very beginning, as I just mentioned, when it was first uh, proposed in 2013, um, it was actually um, mainly about the neighboring countries with China, um, because these are the countries where China has core interests. Um, but in a second step, um, like when we um, talked about the Belt and Road Initiative, 
then it became um, an initiative which aims to revive the ancient Silk Road. And if you talk about the ancient Silk Road, then it's about Eurasia, right? So in the second step, you will find that um, in China's, in some of China's media, they talk about the 65 countries along the Belt and Road, uh, and they talk a lot about um, the regions like the Middle East uh, and also about Central Asia, for instance. But then in the second, in, in the third step, um, things has begun to change because a lot of African countries come to China and say, hey, I think we are supposed to be good friends. We are brothers, right? But now you have a like, grand idea and we are excluded. And China doesn't want to displease anybody. So in the end, um, in the third step, um, the Belton Road Initiative has become and evolved into uh, an initiative at, that actually includes everybody, includes every corner uh, in the world. And even um, like African countries, Latin American countries are included, even though they have nothing to do with the ancient support. Um, yeah, and um, following uh, along with this line of thinking, actually China's policy towards the Middle East um, follows the same principle. So it's like um, China's um, policy towards the region um, is also not a uniform one, just like um, what Guy has mentioned. So it's also there are also like a lot of nuances, a lot of discussions and debates in China. Uh, and the second question, um, um, so Clemens has just mentioned about relations between China and the United States regarding uh, the Middle Eastern issues. Well, I think that first of all, when we talk about um, China and the United States in the Middle East, we have to acknowledge a fact that is the region of the Middle East today um, is neither a priority um, in the diplomatic agenda of the United States, nor is it a priority for China. So um, the importance of the region for both powers is limited. Um, and, I, and as I have just mentioned, China does not have many core interests in the region. So this means that although the tensions between the United States and China are escalating, and China and the United States have a lot of disputes over a lot of issues, um, the two powers are not likely to have many disputes over the Middle Eastern issues. And that is the least thing that China wants to see. Um, since it doesn't have any core interest in the region, like why, like, and we have a lot of disputes with the United States on some very sensitive and more um, sensitive issues, which is directly related to China's uh, core interests. So why should we have disputes over the Middle East? So, well, of course, if China increases its political and military presence in the region, the United States will become nervous, but this is not what China wants. And currently, actually, I agree with um, Guy. I think that there actually exists common grounds for China and the United States, as well as the EU countries in the region. So, for instance, how to you know, help uh, the oil countries diversify their economies and how to uh, help the, the region solve um, the problem of instability, for instance, um, rather than to rival over uh, the region's issues and further complicate the region's geopolitics. And so that is why a lot of um, Chinese um, intellectuals today, they even suggest that we should find some common grounds in the region um, with the United States and the EU countries. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. Oh, I just want to make a brief comment to the question uh, of Zeno. Basically, China, and especially in the Middle East, uh, and uh, the recent trip of Minister Wang Yi 
uh, in the six country uh, underlined it, uh, is uh, an investment-centric approach to foreign policy. Therefore, uh, what I like to call, especially in areas that are more sensitive uh, to security issues, for example, like Libya or Syria, uh, China apply uh, so what I like to call a balanced vagueness approach to foreign policy. And that means that with balanced vagueness that uh, policy in one country doesn't jeopardize China policy in another country. So as the uh, United States uh, and the, the overall security architecture in the Middle East uh, is changing, is transitioning and is changing shape, uh, uh, I do believe that uh, while China can have increasing friction with the US all over the world, in the Middle East, there is an overlapping ground for cooperation. And this cooperation is anti-terrorist policy, security policy, where both China uh, and the United States uh, can look at uh, multipolar order in which uh, uh, several countries outside the region can cooperate and by this country i mean turkey russia india as well as uh, uh, the country inside the middle east as no country uh, at regional level can exert its own hegemony therefore there is a need of this balance of course it can seem a little bit naive as a, as a proposition but again there is more chance of cooperation in the middle east than of friction Thanks, Alex. Tugru, would you like to add on to what three speakers have already given their two cents? Maybe, you know, uh, I, maybe I have a slightly different view, slightly different view. I don't think United States and China can cooperate in the Middle East. It's very difficult uh, under the circumstances because of the, you know, the Middle East is an American backyard. So is Latin America, unlike other countries, other regions in the world. And also, you know, uh, maybe I disagree with my friend, my colleague. Um, I don't think, you know, that China and United States can cooperate on uh, Islamic movements or radicalism because one side is supporting the radicalism, the other side trying to, you know, the, stop the radicalism. United States has been supporting radical Islamic and jihadist movements since the Afghan jihad started, actually, in Afghanistan in 1979, collaboration with Ziya al-Haq in 1979 and, and execution of the uh, Zulfikar Ali Bhutto. As a result of this, you know, the Islamic movements and radical movements, Al-Qaeda or similar kind of organizations have been created, not just directly by the United States, but as a result of the United States unintended consequence in the Afghanistan and Pakistan. United States has been doing the same thing in, in Syria, basically. Why, you know, the three or two to 3,000 Uyghurs living have been fighting in, in Syria or Iraq and in Libya? How they come? What kind of passport they get? What kind of logistic they get? You know, these are the questions that we need to answer. According to the New York Times article in 2013, actually, United States was supporting the you know, paramilitary uh, sports and logistics, you know, the certain groups in Turkey, collaboration with the Turkish government, actually. This was a New York Times article published in New York Times in 2013. So it's very difficult you know, to collaborate on this issue because China has its own interests, trying to protect their own borders and security, fighting against the terrorism. On the other hand, United States has been damaged by the terrorism on September 11, but United States has been using these groups and has been involved in these groups' activities since the 1970s. They have a very interesting love and hate relationship with these groups. So we need to know this then, you know, we need to figure out what will happen next. So. Thank you, Tugru. I think I see a hand from the audience. It's our 
MEI board member, Sir Anthony Theo. Uh, would you like to turn on your video and, and, and uh, unmute yourself to ask your question, please? Yes, I've unmuted myself. Can you yeah. hear me? Yeah, loud and clear. Please go ahead. Yes, yes. Um, I like the narrative in terms of China's involvement for the last 50 to 70 years. Fifty seven years. The, the problem is this. The problem is memory. And memory for the last 70 years, China was the leader in the non-aligned movement with Colonel Nasser, with Sokarno. And they went to, Chao Ling Lai went to Egypt with Nasser, ran up the pyramid and was brotherhood. And it was after the Bandung conference. Seven years later, the Chinese and the Ch Indians got into a war. Today, China is bigger, much more influential. So I've got two points in here. One is from a military point of view, uh, there can be correlation in terms of government and private securities like in Libya and in Djibouti and elsewhere. Uh, the other part has to do with the Belt and Road. So the problem with memory is this. 60, 70 years ago, the Chinese did some wonderful work in Africa in the Tanzania-Zambia railway. It was a rather purist form of what a non-aligned country with Africa could work together. Today, the Belt and Road system has many successes, but it is a very capitalist type of model in that some of these have come into grief, like in uh, Equatorial Guinea, Principe, Sri Lanka, and a few others. So we can talk about they have been involved, but we must remember that history and memory is a problem. It, we cannot just wash it away. Whether it's the Chinese or the Americans, they can't wash it away. Except that in the Belt and Road, the Biden administration is beginning to think as to how they could deal with that from a more two-way street. That has still got to be seen. So I, I like the speakers to comment on it. And in particular, for Professor Chang, because when you are small, it's okay. When you are big, whether you ex exert the issue of bigness and hegemon exists and you've got to deal with that. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Teo. I think we'll start with Chu uh, Chu. Uh, okay, thank you for uh, Mr. Teo's question. Yeah, I think um, he has uh, raised the problem of, about the memory issue. Um, and he has also mentioned uh, an interesting point, which is a comparison between the railway um, that we built for the, Africa, the African countries in the um, 60 or 70 years ago and the Belt and Road Initiative right now. Uh, well, I think that this is a very interesting comparison. And um, but I think that the, um, 
So there are differences, but there are similarities as well. So the difference is that um, actually um, in the 1950s and 1960s, um, which was the first um, two or three decades after um, China got independence. So China's diplomacy was um, more like ideological um, diplomacy. Um, so at that time, yeah, China was very interested in the non-alignment movement. Um, and at the same time, basically there was the um, context of the Cold War. So um, in, at that point, so the main allies or the main um, diplomatic partners for China was um, those countries which share the same, the same um, ideologies with China. Um, but then things has become to change and after um, the end of the Cold War and after China adopted the opening up and reform uh, policy, um, China started to change its um, diplomatic ideas and now it has adopted the economic diplomacy. So right now, um, China is not just dealing with the countries which share the same um, ideologies, but at the same time, it also, um, you know, deal with the countries which have different um, ideologies with, from China. Uh, and the second difference is that um, in the past, um, when China um, had interactions with the countries in Africa, for instance, at that time, China itself was a backward country and it was a poor country. We didn't have a lot of money. Uh, and also China's technology um, was quite backward as well. And also at that point, um, China, I mean, in the country, we can see that we have our own problems. We have a lot of people who are starving. Uh, a lot of people were living um, below the poverty line. So after decades of development, now China has developed into uh, a big economic power. So today China thinks that uh, it has to, um, can say that it has to, um, first of all, um, summarizes on um, experience in its own economic development and introduce this kind of experience to the other countries. And also at the same time, it thinks that, um, so today we care more about the win-win prospects of this kind of project. So when we deal with, or when we promote the, kind, the Belt and Road Initiative, um, like one important purpose is to um, develop and is to, to develop together um, for all of the partners. And also um, China has to gain economic interests, but the other countries also, they have to gain their interests. It's not that, um, uh, yeah, so like, like neutral interests is um, also important. But at the same time, there are also um, similarities between what China did um, 60 or 70 years ago and what it does now. So for instance, that is the aid and that is the friendship. So for instance, 60 or 70 years ago, um, China sent the medical um, team to countries like Algeria. Uh, and today it's doing the same uh, in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. So I think now there are changes, but there are also similarities. Thank you. Thank you, Chu Chu. Would anyone want to add on to, to what Chu Chu has said in, in addition uh, to what she has said in response to Mr. Teo's question? Yes, if I may, um, just a couple of remarks. Uh, as uh, Dr. Teo un underlined and uh, very well, uh, in 
around 49-79, Chinese involvement in the Middle East uh, was driven by an ideological struggle against imperialism, colonialism, and it was in the framework of the Cold War. 79 uh, to 2012, uh, it evolved to a more cautious uh, and let's say selective engagement. Uh, mm -hmm. And now, nowadays, it looks uh, at development, uh, but not uh, at the democratic peace in the Middle East, more at the developmental peace in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. uh, from the security point of view, um, as been mentioned, private security in Djibouti. Djibouti mm -hmm. is the first uh, military base outside China, and it's quite important uh, for all the equilibrium in the Horn of Africa and for the ongoing anti-piracy operation, the People Liberation Navy uh, is, uh, is already carrying on. And the private security, uh, it's quite uh, an interesting security actor that it's evolving in China. And uh, it's basically filling partially some of the security gap that the PLA uh, can cannot uh, uh, feel up to now, yes. and basically that's uh, that's my point. Thank you. Thank you, Alex, and I hope Mr. Tio they they've answered the questions. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Clement. Thank you. Um, we'll move on to a few more questions on on the chat box. There seems to be a few right now. Uh, so in the interest of time, let me try to lump it and, and point it in the right direction to specific speakers. So we do have, of course, the most popular one and the, the, the hype right now is on the China-Iran deal. And the question really is about, you know, um, how likely is Iran going to sell discounted oil to China over the next 25 years in exchange for in China's investments and political support? Uh, and, and, you know, is it a recognition on the Iranian side that it has more to gain from aligning with China than with the U.S.? So I'll leave this question for True True and Guy. All right. Um, we have another question on arm sales. And I think the perfect candidate is Alex. So the, the question on arm sales is, uh, China has a long history of arm sales to Iran that seems to have been reinforced by the recent agreement that is reported to include deepening military cooperation, including joint training and exercises, joint research and weapons development and intelligence sharing. Given the current interstate dynamics in the Gulf, would this not amount to interference? This is a question from Philip Andrews Speed. And then we have one more question, and I think I will assign this to Tugru, uh, is, is on, on Islam. And the question is, I wonder if you can relate a bit on Chinese involvement in Islam through its involvement in the Hajj and various infrastructural projects in Saudi Arabia, and especially in Mecca. Do you see this as China going global through implicating itself in Islam? And this question comes from Ruslan Yusupov. I think we'll start with Tugru first since from the back, since, since I just uh, put the question forward. Tugru, please. Oh, me? No. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert on Saudi Arabia, but you know, the Chinese involvement in Saudi Arabia and the Islam and Middle East, it has been a long you know, the process basically. Uh, also, you know, I would like to mention one more thing uh, with the Theos um, uh, uh, comment on imperialism and, and, you know, the African countries and Cho and Lai. I think it's very important that, you know, the, we need to understand Cho and Lai visit in 1963 and 1957, Middle East and African countries. This has been very important visit, actually. Uh, China today is not the same China. 
is bigger China with almost more than 400 million people middle class, 1.4 billion people with the energy needs. China needs energy. China needs you know, the uh, uh, market. China needs natural resources. But so is Europe and the United States in the 18th and 19th century. China has been doing the similar things, but with a different approach, with a different approach. Um, um, China's relation with Islam is, um, is, is, from my own perspective, is different than the other countries. It's different than the other countries. If you look at the Hui or you know, the other Chinese Muslim communities, basically, they have been, they have been, they have been Muslim and, and they have been in the Islam, engaging with Islam for over centuries, over centuries. I mean, you know, the, one of the first mosques in, 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 in China was built in 742, basically in Xi'an. There are other mosques around the region. China has been, on the other hand, has been investing and building the mosques in the Middle East. Algerian mosque is the, I think, one of the third uh, largest mosque in the world, in the world, basically. China is investing. And also, you know, the, uh, the project in Mecca and, and Riyadh and other places. And China needs to get involved in the Middle East, not just the economy, but also politics. There is no escape from this. Middle East is very slippery road, very slippery road that United States has been in the Middle East uh, and, and uh, involving in the internal politics and domestic politics last 60, 70 years. They are not successful. I am not sure China will be successful under the circumstance of you know, the uh, chaotic, uh, chaotic you know, the, uh, wars and, and urbanization and society and politics. If you look at the Syria and Iraq, today is an entire mess actually, entire mess. And the next step is the Jordan and, Jordan and Lebanon. And Iran, on the other hand, under the sanction of the United States, I mean, entire region has been a mess since the you know, United States involvement or British involvement in the early 1900s, basically. So involving in this mess is not going to be easy for the China. On the other hand, China doesn't have, from my own understanding, doesn't have, doesn't have a lot of you know the um, uh, Middle Eastern experts, mm. Middle Eastern experts. Unlike the United States, don't forget, Middle East history in Washington D.C. originally supported by the CIA and State Department, established in 1946. 1946, Middle East history in Washington D.C. Middle East studies associations, established by the State Department in 1966. There are a lot of scholars. You know, coming from the Europe, British, they adopted the British policies. I mean, Tim Niblock, probably he knows better than me, who is in China now. Um, but China needs to be very careful when they get involved in the Middle East. It's not like, you know, the East Asia or Southeast Asia. They know better. They know better. Or Africa. There are a lot of African studies center. Middle East is slightly different. Islam is a slightly different issue. And it's a very touchy subject for the China. And as well as for the United States. Because United States, don't forget, you should remember, United States has been using the certain Islamic groups against the Soviets in the 1970s, 80s. And similar kind of groups has been used in Afghanistan and Pakistan, like the Uzbekistan Islamic movements, influenced the uh, Etim, basically, Eastern Turkestan Islamic movements under the uh, Bahtiyar Namangani. So United States has been involving in this issue for a long time. I am not sure China will be successful or, you know, we will see. We will see what will happen, basically. Thank you, Tugru. Let us move to the China-Iran deal question. Uh, maybe Guy, if you'd like to take that on first. Yeah, thank, thank you, Clemens. I mean, very, very briefly, um, 
It's a very good question about sort of China and Iran, and there is a lot of talk about the two of them working together and collaborating and causing, creating this kind of anti-US uh, alliance or partnership. I mean, I think that's overstating it. I mean, if you look at the history of, of China and, and Iran's relationship with each other, um, it is, I mean, currently, I think what's happening is because of Chinese you know, American containment, basically American pressure, both against Iran and China, that is pushing the two of them together. It's not that they necessarily want to be together, although it's, it serves their interests right now to do so. But keep in mind, of course, that, you know, if there was an alternative, they would take it. And, and if you look at Chinese Iranian relations, you know, there have been points back in the 1990s, for example, when the Chinese, seeing better option, better relations with America on the table, abandoned Iran and abandoned the, the nuclear cooperation nuclear cooperation it was doing at the time. So it is, so both of them would be, and, and you can see this with Iran right now. I mean, Iran wants to see sanctions lifted against it. Um, so it wants investment from the West. So it's not solely looking to the Chinese, it's forced to look to the Chinese. Now, the final point I will say is that um, both, you know, the relationship is not an equal one. So, you know, it will cost more for Iran to walk away from China than it will for China to walk away from Iran. Thank you. Right. Thank you. Thank you, Guy. Chuchu, would you like to add on to what Guy just said? Yeah, thank you. Uh, basically, I agree with uh, Guy's comments. I have just um, three points very briefly. So first of all, uh, actually, when we talk about the China-Iran deal, we have to bear in mind that it is not something that just emerges immediately, like yesterday, to just come out. But no, but actually, negotiated, negotiation between the two sides started long ago. Um, and it's not just, it's not that the tensions between China and the United States are escalating and then we are going to take an revenge and take a revenge and we just call Iran, we just sign a new agreement. It's not like that, but actually uh, it has already been a long process. So um, yeah, and also um, why is there a deal like that? Uh, actually China needs Iran's energy, but also Iran, it needs China's investment. It has uh, economic difficulties right now. So as um, Guy has mentioned, it doesn't have many choices right now. Uh, and also we have to bear in mind that it's not the first day that China decides to invest in Iran. Actually, if you look back at the history of Sino-Iranian relations, you will find that the two countries' relations can be dated way back. So it's just a, a continuing what has already happened. It's not something new. Uh, and the second point is that um, if you look at the China uh, Iran deal, you also have to uh, look at the whole context. So recently, the Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi, he not only visited Iran, uh, but also visited Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Turkey, Bahrain, and Oman, which shows that China has no intentions to get entangled in the region's conflict. And it's not that China is going to take sides between the region's powers and China is going to make an ally with Iran. It's not like that. China only plans to invest in Iran, but at the same time, it also hopes to invest in the other Middle Eastern countries as well. Uh, and the third point is that for Iran, um, just as what Guy has mentioned, it doesn't have many choices right now. It's actually, it hopes and it, because it, uh, its economy is in such a difficulty, it really wants to have more you know, um, investment from the Western countries, but they just refuse to give it. Um, so it has no choice but to, uh, to, to look at China. So for Iran right now, China is an alternative and it's more like a, a hedging tool, I would say. Um, thank you. Thank you, Chushu, and thank you, Guy, for your input. 
Uh, Alex, do you want to respond to the question on arms sales, please? Definitely. Uh, I will try to be brief. Arms deal, uh, it's a part uh, of military diplomacy. And then we can question for a long time if military diplomacy is going to infringe uh, non-interference. Having said that, again, I, I want to, to repeat myself saying that China is not a new actor in the Middle East. What it means, that is not just now that China woke up with the 25 years agreement with Iran, looking at training, uh, weapon development, uh, intelligence sharing, and so on. For example, in the 80s, during Iran-Iraq war, uh, when there were SCAD and Persian missile moving from one side to the other of the border, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia tried to acquire defense capability in the missile system, and then it was China that gave to the KSA a lifeline uh, with a Dongfang missile system. If we move uh, in the 90s, uh, then uh, we have uh, the crisis between uh, US and Israel, with Israel uh, trying to sell to China the Falcon system, that it was an airborne early warning system. And this problem show up again in Israel, if I recall correctly, in 2005, uh, with the uh, loitering munition, the Harpoi system, that again, again, the United States blocked the transfer to China. So weapon uh, technology transfer uh, has been going on for a quite long time. The only difference now that we are talking about high technology weapon system. And uh, I will take uh, the end of the presentation from my colleague Tugrul, uh, because he didn't tell us all the story. When uh, China was not allowed to sell the missile system to Turkey, uh, Turkey tried to acquire the Patriot, but the Obama administration blocked it. So who jumped in? and Russia jumped in, selling to Turkey the most advanced anti-missile defensive system that is the FS-400 Triumph. And now with a missile defensive system made in Russia for a NATO partner, uh, the crisis is there. And you can see with the block of transfer of the F-13-35 uh, uh, fighter jet to, to Turkey. So uh, military transfer uh, is going on in the, in the region. Probably, uh, as I mentioned before, we are looking at a change in the security architecture and there will be an increase in arms race. And this arms race will not only increase in conventional weapon system, but also in cyber weapon system. And that's it from my side. Thank you, Alex. And I wonder how that will contribute to the five point plan, that point on collective security that was, that was listed in, in that five point plan. So. Uh, we will take one more question before we conclude. I see a hand uh, in the audience. Uh, Farks, I think, if I, if I pronounced it correctly. Uh, Philip Farks, I assume, taking a step. But please go ahead and, and ask your question. Yes. Uh, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, perfect. Uh, good, good morning or good afternoon to everyone. And, and thanks a lot for this uh, very interesting talk. My question was... Um, I work, uh, sorry, yeah, I'll present myself. I work for the French Development Agency. I'm an advisor uh, in the Middle East. Um, and my question is more on the, uh, the, the Vant region and, and the countries that have been affected by, by conflict uh, or crisis recently. Um, and my question is about Chinese development policy in these countries. So I'm talking about Lebanon, uh, Syria, and to a lesser extent, Iraq. Um, we saw over the last few years that China made uh, a few announcements, a few key announcements on potential development aids in terms of uh, concessional loans, uh, humanitarian aid, uh, and so on to, um, to Syria, for example, to, to Lebanon. Um, you know, the Chinese government announced that it would be involved in the reconstruction of Syria, which is quite a, um, let's say, 
critical issue in the region. Um, after the explosion in Beirut, also a lot of heads turned to China, uh, hoping for, for some kind of uh, financing. Uh, and this is in a period where, um, you know, let's say Western countries are less inclined to provide development aids to, uh, to Lebanon because of what's uh, happening. And of course, uh, because of the sanctions in, uh, in Syria. So um, my questions for the, the speakers is, what do you make of these announcements from China uh, showing some kind of interest to be involved in the development of these countries? Um, and the fact that these announcements were rarely followed by uh, real actual investments. Um, I would be really curious to, to hear you on that. Um, and also bearing in mind that the Chinese also made announcements about you know, investing in ports in the region, such as in Tartus in Syria, but also in uh, the port of Tripoli in, uh, in Lebanon. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, shall we have everyone giving one to two minutes on, to respond to this question? Maybe um, Dugru, do you want to start first? I mean, you know, um, actually, instead of answering, you know, the, can I share the, you know, the short video with you guys? Yeah, you can. Directly related with this, not directly, indirectly related with the answer with investment, Chinese investment and Chinese investment versus the Western investment. It was a very interesting video. It's an old video, but it's short. One minute video, if I can show you, actually, if you don't mind. Please go ahead. One minute. Thank you. One, one minute, yeah. I've been very concerned lately about China. They're in Africa. They're they're lending money to countries to build ports and different infrastructure. To build what? Port. And what's wrong with that? And well, because countries that need ports get ports. But they're making people dependent on. I mean, I know it's the same thing that we've done, which is no, it's not all around the world. They are but... they are far more humanistic than the United States ever was. <laughs> really? Okay. Absolutely. Great. So. Let me give, give an okay. example. Of course, they are trying; they are peddling for in, for for influence. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but they are non-interventionist, absolutely non-interventionist in a way that Europeans, the West, has never managed to fathom. The Chinese never asked Apple to go to Shenzhen and produce all the iPhones. It was um, Steve Jobs that decided that. Yeah? Mm -hmm. the, it was not China that. Um, went to Washington DC and demanded that they buy a third of your national debt. If they hadn't bought it, you would be in serious trouble. Mm -hmm. When it comes to the influence of China outside its borders, it's quite remarkable that they don't seem to have any military ambitions. Instead of going into Africa with troops, colonially destroying the country, killing people like the West has done, for the last hundred years, what they did was they went to Addis Ababa and they said to the government, we can see you have problem, problems with your infrastructure. We would like to build some new airports, um, upgrade your railway system, create a telephone system and rebuild your roads. And we'll do this all for, all for free. No strings attached. We don't want anything from you. And they did. Why did they do it? Because it's soft power. They are immensely self-serving. I mean, exactly. This is like soft power. You know, the humanitarian approach and humanitarian investment in the region is like a soft power. You know, we will see how China will use this soft power in the region. Chinese relationship will be developed under these circumstances from my perspective, I think. 
soft power. China's soft power is very important in the region, not just the trade, not just the economy. So. Thanks to the group. Uh, Guy, yeah. do you want to follow up from there? Thank you, yeah. Um, so it's always a tough, tough ask to follow Yanis Varoufakis, isn't it? But anyway, I will try. Um, no, just to, I mean, the point, the question that was asked about sort of, you know, China's uh, involvement in places like Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, um, I mean, the point, the main point I would make is that actually, if you look at the figures, they are, it's, there's relatively low Chinese investment in compared to other parts of the Middle East, you know, specifically around the Gulf, like Saudi Arabia, the UAE, um, Qatar, and Iran, and Israel, and, and then also Israel. And I think part of the reason for that is, you know, it is, a, these, these, these countries are you know, in conflict, they are therefore not attractive business 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 investments they're not attractive to to sink risk um you know ultimately at the end of the day you know choo-choo's alluded to the belt and road being sort of a broad idea you know with which didn't have a lot of content the content had to be filled by companies and okay yes we can talk about state companies primarily in terms of the infrastructure sector but also private companies for them it's not in their interest to invest in a place where there is risk um, and so conflict has to be sorted out. So this is one of actually the, the challenges associated with the development through peace uh, paradigm, because you know the, the, what we're getting is this idea that maybe we can solve the problems of conflict through development. Right, you know, let's park to one side democracy and all of that, but let's focus on a developmentalist approach. The problem is that most the, the bulk of Chinese financing and funding and projects are going to the most developed parts of the Middle East. Thank you, Guy. One minute from Chu Chu and Alex, I'm afraid. Chu Chu, please. Okay, thank you. I'll make it briefly in just two points. So the first one is that uh, just as uh, what Guy has mentioned, actually China's investment in um, like the, the Levant or Syria and Lebanon is less um, less than its investment in other parts of the region. And it's not just less than uh, the investment in Gulf countries or Israel, but it's also less than in North Africa. And actually uh, one important reason is uh, the risks is high and the places are in conflict. Uh, but this, another uh, important reason is that um, those places are quite um, sensitive. On the one hand, um, both Russia and the United States have their own interests in the region and, and any kind of action from China can raise controversies and problems. And also China has, uh, just as uh, Frog has mentioned, actually um, China has um, been encountering a lot of criticism uh, and debates when it comes to the aid issue in the region, it can be sensitive since it's in conflict. And my second point is that um, actually, when you talk about the investment of China, you will uh, have to dare, bear in mind that actually in recent years, China's investment is declining, not only in the Middle East, and not only in different parts of the Middle East, but also in the other parts of the world. And that is because China's own economic growth has slowed down. And on the one hand, since the Belt and Road Initiative has now evolved into a broad initiative that includes every country in the world, so it means that China's investment has to be distracted in different countries. So it's like impossible for it to maintain a large sum of investment in each part. And the second more important problem is that China's own economic um, growth is slowing down, particularly in this um, you know, COVID-19 pandemic. So that is why its investment capacity is slowing down. Thank you.
Thank you, Chuchu Guy and Tubru. Sorry, there were some problems with unmuting earlier. Uh, Alex, do you want to have the last word? Definitely. I was trying to have it early, but I see that our IT people prefer to don't let me do it, and I think they are right. Uh, I will be brief. Uh, first and foremost, uh, if we look uh, at the collapse of Muammar Gaddafi regime in uh, Libya, was an eye-opener for China that have to evacuate 36,000 or more Chinese workers almost overnight. And it was a lesson that was telling to China that throwing money at the problem, especially a security problem, was not the solution. Uh, and my second point is basically uh, looking at the question, but not from a Chinese perspective, but from a Levant perspective, and even in the Middle East, that most of the time there are over expectation about Chinese investment. Like something is going to happen or it happened in Syria for the reconstruction and the Chinese are just stepping in, throwing money everywhere and rebuilding the country. So this over expectation, especially in the Levant can create a problem in the long term. And that's it from my side, thank you. Thank you, Alex, that was very brief. So we have now come to the end of today's MEI event on China and the Middle East. My sincere gratitude to all our four speakers to to join us today and take time off your busy schedule and to give us your insights. So a big thank you to our audience as well for your questions. Uh, we have an uh, event on Thursday at the same time, 4 p.m. Singapore time, a webinar which will cover and assess Israel's expanding Arab relations. So please do join us then.